Half Price Horror. Hello and welcome to Half Price Horror, where we get our terror at a discount and pass the savings on to you. Half Price Horror is a spoiler-heavy podcast that takes a deep dive into scary movies curated by the selection at the local Half Price bookstore. I'm your host, John, and today we'll be taking a look at Ash vs. Evil Dead Season 3, Episodes 1-5 through 5, from 2018. And if you're paying attention to the timeline, that's significant enough to be our opening topic of conversation because Season 1 premiered in October of 2015, and Season 2 premiered in October of 2016. And while Stars officially renewed the series for a third season right around the time Season 2 began, 2017 came and went without a return to television from one Ashley J. Williams. The show had completed shooting, despite a change in showrunner from Craig DiGregorio to Mark Verheiden. DiGregorio parted ways with the series due to a conflict with producer Rob Tappert over the direction of the season finale of Season 2. In DiGregorio's version, Ash would have changed history by retroactively becoming Kelly's father, only to see her kidnapped by Ruby and Ball setting up Season 3 as an attempt to find and rescue her. Honestly, I'm on Tappert's side here. Kelly's more interesting as a surrogate daughter, and she doesn't need rescuing. But no, Verheiden stepped into the new role without a hitch, unsurprising really given that he's got a history of writing and producing that includes Swamp Thing, Daredevil, Battlestar Galactica, and Bruce Campbell's own independently produced horror comedy My Name is Bruce, which we never got to in the Summer of Sam because I still haven't spotted a used copy floating around anywhere. It's honestly kind of a mystery why Stars moved the premiere from October 2017 to February 2018, although it might have had something to do with the highly anticipated second season of Stranger Things dropping that month on Netflix, or the premiere of Walking Dead Season 8 and its 100th episode around the same time. Either way, the delay definitely hurt the series in the ratings, but we'll get to that another time. For now, let's just mention that the main cast remains mostly the same. We'll cover writer and director credits on an episode-by-episode -episode basis. Ash returns, still played by the legendary Bruce Campbell. And Ray Santiago and Dana DiLorenzo come back for another season as his beleaguered allies Pablo and Kelly. Lucy Lawless also reprises her role as Ruby, the half-demon, half-human dark one who authored the Necronomicon. And of course, the Delta 88 is back as itself. But this time we have two new cast members. Ariel Carver-O'Neill plays Brandy Barr, Ash's unexpected daughter, and Lindsay Ferris makes an appearance in the first half of the season as Dalton, one of the Knights of Sumeria. Obviously, we'll dig into both of these developments as they occur within the series. Carver-O'Neill is an Australian actor with a few soap operas and some movie roles to her credit. She was in Predestination and Ticket to Paradise, here playing a high school student despite being 25 when she shot her scenes for the series, and Ferris has a similar background and resume, although he's done a bit more action in his time. You might recognize him from guest spots on My Life is Murder, the Lethal Weapon TV show, and the Pam and Tommy miniseries. And as a refresher on the current state of affairs for those who need it, after the Evil Dead movies, Ash has been spending three decades as the custodian of the Necronomicon Ex Mortis, a tome of dark magic and demon summoning rituals, and it's a task he's ill-suited to and very unhappy with, but also very good at surviving. After accidentally unleashing some demons while stoned, he teams up with his co-workers Kelly and Pablo to bury the book once and for all under the cabin where he found it, only to instead wind up giving it to its original author Ruby, who promises to use it wisely, if not well, by giving birth to a brood of demonic children with it. 
but her children turn on her, stealing her immortality and attempting to use the book to summon a manipulative and charismatic body-hopping demon named Ball. The group destroys Ruby's brood of treacherous kids and hurls the Necronomicon into another dimension, but Ball escapes through the same portal with the intention of turning humanity against itself. Pablo, who's developed a mystic connection to the Unholy Book, seemingly banishes Ball back to his own realm, but dies in the process. Ash decides to cut the Gordian knot and solve the problem by time-traveling back to ensure that he never found the Necronomicon in the first place, but Ball hitches a ride in Pablo's corpse and starts his plan for world domination 30 years early. Ash has a final confrontation with Ball, killing him with his own razor-sharp talon and resurrecting Pablo in the process, which branches off a new timeline where he's a local hero and the Necronomicon has disappeared forever. But unbeknownst to him, Ruby is evil in this new timeline and has her own schemes for Ash, the book, and the human race. Follow all that? Good, because it's only going to get weirder. With episode one, Family. Premiere date, February 25th, 2018. Written by Mark Verheiden and directed by Mark Beasley. We've covered both of these gentlemen before, but it's worth mentioning that Aaron Lamb and Caitlin Mears are on board as story editors, and Brian Hill is a staff writer for the season. Hill would go on to be a writer and executive story editor for the Titans series, based on the DC Comics, while Mears would go on to perform similar work for the Netflix show Santa Clarita Diet, and Lamb would go on to write and produce the show Mech Cadets. It's also worth mentioning that Bruce Campbell, who remains very protective of the character of Ash, would frequently rewrite his own dialogue if he thought it didn't sound right coming out of his mouth. By this point in the franchise, it's hard to argue he hadn't earned that privilege. Episode 1 opens much like my podcast, with a quick recap of the previous two seasons. One thing that's very noticeable right away is that Verheiden gives the demonic entities the collective name of Evil, which is an odd choice when the term Deadites is right there and Evil both doesn't trip off the tongue very convincingly and sounds a lot like they're talking about David Warner in Time Bandits. Unfortunately, that clunky construction is going to stick around for the whole season, so get used to it. We then transition to a sexually suggestive ad for Ash's new hardware store slash sex toy emporium, which he's opening out of the storefront his dad once owned but closed down to concentrate on his lumber business. It's a rousing success, as is Pablo's food slash computer repair truck out front. Yes, he did in fact open Pablito's fish and chips. But as people file in to spend their hard-earned money, the TV set in the front of the store transitions from the ad to an Antiques Roadshow-style series where a woman named Amy, played by Albertine Jonas, has brought in an old book she found to be appraised. A very familiar-looking old book. Yep, it's the Necronomicon. And as Kelly watches from the bar she either owns or at least bounces at, judging by the way she slams someone's head into the railing for stealing the free pretzels, the host of the series, played with magnificently smarmy aplomb by Jeffrey Thomas, proves to be not just a skilled appraiser but an expert in dead languages as he flips the book open and reads off an incantation or two, just for funsies. Because this show is many things, but subtle is not one of them. The unseen force summoned by the incantation slaughters the entire cast and crew of the show on live television, shortly before going off the air due to technical difficulties, and the use of the Necronomicon's rituals once again causes Sumerian writing to appear on Pablo's flesh. And Ruby shows up to collect her book from the host only moments later, killing him as the title card drops. When we come out, Brandy Barr and her friend Rachel Manning, who's played by Ellie Gall, are at school, stuck behind while the other students leave, while they clean up some lockers they graffitied as part of a prank. 
Rachel's clearly the instigator of the two, and while Brandy goes along with some of her ideas, she's really just hoping to graduate and leave town for somewhere a little more exciting than Elk Grove. But as the unseen force goes from the barn where they were shooting the TV show to the high school, possessing the empty mascot costume and killing the electricity, it's clear that the immediate future is going to be a lot more important than their post-graduation plans. Blood begins to ooze from the suit and the lockers, coating the floors and prompting Brandy and Rachel to run for it. But the doors won't open, so Brandy has to call her mom Candy, played by Katrina Hobbs, for help. Candy, who's glowering resentfully at Ash from just outside the hardware store as he works the crowd, goes up to him and reminds him that the two of them got married in Vegas about, oh, 19 years ago, and as Ash's memory is finally jogged by the name Candy Bar, they had a lot of sex during their brief but tumultuous relationship. And Ash apparently has a habit of reusing his quote-unquote lucky condom. So yep, we've got a long-lost teenage kid, which is every bit as familiar a late-stage trope of heroic franchises as the emotionally distant father. Indiana Jones similarly did both, almost back-to-back, -back, in fact. And Candy needs Ash's help to save her. Ruby, meanwhile, has taken her prize to a hotel room, where she performs a ritual using the page that depicts Ash's role as the prophesied hero and her own blood to make a child of her own. It begins rapidly gestating inside her, the first step in her plans for the final battle between humanity and the deadite, excuse me, evil, hordes. Ash, Pablo, and Candy go to the high school, where Ash is at first distracted by old memories, he finds his secret weed stash still undisturbed after more than 30 years, but soon finds Brandy and Rachel hiding in the music room. Candy tells Brandy the truth about her parentage, and it's probably a good thing that Candy's not going to live much longer because those rhyming names get real confusing. Um, spoilers. But not spoilers for long, as Rachel is possessed by a Kandarian demon, announced by her recitation of a new verse of the Ashy Slashy rhyme, and I really just want to do a deep dive into the lore of this and all its variations and all the different versions kids heard in different towns, and I may just be a weird nerd and she uses the musical instruments as weapons in a fight that makes novel use of the high school setting. We got supersonic tuba blasts, trombones and guitars used as blunt instruments, a poke in the eye with drumsticks, and of course a cymbal hurled straight at Brandy's throat like Xena's chakram. And when Pablo pushes Brandy out of the way, it slices Candy's head clean off. Ash kills Rachel by julienning her face with a harp, although not before she mentions a plan to destroy Ash's child and his quote-unquote seed. But Brandy is scarred and traumatized by the death of her mother and her best friend in a way that feels very believable. She hasn't been privy to 20 preceding episodes of weirdness, and she's anything but jaded. And Ash is too busy taking down the school mascot to do a good job of supporting her emotionally through her trauma. Not that he's ever been great at being supportive, but he at least knows what she's going through. He also doesn't do a great job of fighting the mascot demon, but luckily Kelly shows up with serious firepower and a mysterious hot guy in a leather jacket. She blows up the mascot's head with a grenade, and the stranger announces himself as Dalton, a knight of Sumeria and champion of the prophesied one. The four of them unite once again, ready to confront evil, but Brandy is just horrified by all of it as the episode ends. And things haven't changed much at the beginning of Episode 2, Booth 3. Clearly, Booth is winning. Premiere date, March 4th, 2018. Written by Rob Fresco and directed by Mark Beasley.
Fresco is a writer, director, and producer who got his start with the New Monkeys TV show back in 1987, and that was something I never expected to mention on this podcast, and kept going with episodes of Heroes, Wayward Pines, and the New Swamp Thing series, among others. But before we get Brandy, we see Ruby driving through a storm as the gestating child inside her tries to tear its way out. She spins out of control, narrowly missing a pair of hitchhikers, and as the car comes to a stop, a gout of blood explodes all over the inside of the windshield. The male hitchhiker goes to take a look and finds Ruby torn completely open with an umbilical cord emerging from her viscera, and sure enough, there's a baby crawling around in the back seat. But the baby develops a massive set of fangs almost instantly and chomps his way into the hitchhiker's throat, and Ruby, who's still immortal in this timeline, wakes up, tears through the umbilical cord with her own teeth, and goes to collect her infant as the title card drops. We come back on Brandy, lying confused and traumatized on her Aunt Cheryl's old bed back in the Williams house, and god I hope someone changed the sheets, as Ash comes in and tries way too hard to create a father-daughter relationship pretty much straight out of thin air and without really taking into account Brandy's state of emotional shock at seeing her mom dead. Again, this is one of those moments where the series lives and dies on Bruce Campbell's particular brand of smarmy charm. There's no way this scene would work without his comic touch making you believe that yes, this is how this character would handle finding out he had a teenage daughter he didn't know about. Brandy finds out that her high school guidance counselor, Mrs. Previtt, has left a text message for her, and decides to go talk to the one adult apart from her mother she views as an actual friend. She asks for a ride back to school from Ash, after threatening to call an Uber when he suggests opening up to him instead. Downstairs, Pablo and Kelly are discussing new arrival Dalton, and I'll admit I let out something of a weary sigh when Pablo started acting jealous of the cool new dude with the leather jacket and the motorcycle and the Knight of Sumeria affiliation. I really didn't miss the whole Pablo has a thing for Kelly and resents being friendzone dynamic from season 1, and I thought it was nice that they'd moved past that in season 2. This felt a bit like a regression, and a macho possessive regression at that. It doesn't help that Dalton really is doing a lot of strutting and boasting, which is kind of amusing given what's going to happen to him over the first half of this season. Dalton does a little lore drop, explaining that the Knights of Sumeria have been around for hundreds of years, it's implied even at this point that they are connected to Ash's adventures in Army of Darkness, and they know that the true threat comes not from the book, but from the Dark Ones who authored it. They were seemingly unstoppable until one of them, a ruthless sorceress who's not mentioned by name but who's obviously Ruby, betrayed and banished the others. The knights seized the opportunity to steal the book and have been playing keep away with it ever since, but one of them, a sorceress named Kaya, was corrupted by it and trapped within its pages. Gee, that single little extraneous detail from the 700 odd years of the Order's history isn't going to turn out to be important later, is it? Nah. Ash comes down with Brandy and tells the gang they have to do that thing. What's it called? He asks them. Like when you're driving in a car, putting on deodorant, and trying to drink a beer at the same time. Kelly's guess is reckless endangerment, and I really wish Dana DiLorenzo got more roles because her delivery on this is fan-freaking-tastic. But he's actually talking about multitasking. He wants Pablo to keep the hardware store running while he delivers Brandy to school and then does a little check on that weird mention of his seed from the previous episode. Ash tries to bond with Brandy on the drive over, but his sense of the appropriate has been pretty severely warped by 30 years of living on the road fighting demons, and the stories he tells about her mom aren't really the kind of things she wants to hear about. 
He lets her out in the parking lot, which is still the scene of an active criminal investigation, and awkwardly reminds her not to mention their involvement in a double homicide to the cops. Brandy agrees, still very much emotionally shut down. I love that Carver O'Neill absolutely refuses to play her trauma as anything less than 100% serious. It's an excellent choice that really reminds you just how strange and bizarre the universe of the series actually is, and goes inside to talk to her school counselor, who's actually Ruby, and who's very interested to hear that Brandy is Ash's kid. Bum bum bum. She wastes no time in trying to turn Brandy against her father, strategically mentioning that Ash killed his sister and offering her a place to stay if she doesn't want to hang out in her dead aunt's house. The police come along to interview Brandy before she can answer, but it's clear the plan here is divide and conquer. Back in Ash's trailer, Pablo is prepping their weapons when his tattoos begin to flare up with pain and bleed. He receives a vision of a woman garbed in some sort of Central American tribal outfit. I don't know how authentic or specific this is, but the actor playing her is Hannah Tasker Poland, who tells him that he needs to embrace his destiny as a brujo in order to avert a grave danger to his soul. She then disappears as Kelly and Dalton come in, and as Pablo leaves for the hardware store, Dalton warns Kelly that the touch of the Necronomicon on Pablo's skin and soul will inevitably lead to his transformation into a Kandarian demon which feels a bit unjustified given that Pablo had Sumerian tats for most of last season and it didn't lead to anything, but this franchise is the outback steakhouse of supernatural horror comedy. No rules, just right. Ash heads to the local sperm bank, where he's apparently made several donations over the years. He's there to find out whether anyone's been inquiring about his seed lately. He bribes the information out of the technician, a woman named Marcy, who's played by Debbie Newby Ward, with a 20% off coupon at the hardware store. And the way she makes a meal out of the line, 30% would be better, makes me want to track down some of the other stuff she's worked on, because she does a whole lot with a very brief appearance. While she's working, Ash decides to help out the cause in his usual booth, the titular booth 3, but while he's in there, Ruby casts a spell from the Necronomicon that causes a demon to possess Mrs. Lamb, the other technician, played by Helene Wong, so it can destroy all of Ash's frozen sperm and prevent him from having any further children. Poor Marcy wanders in, and being in the wrong place at the wrong time is all it takes to ensure that she never will get a chance to use that 30% off coupon. Inside the booth, Ash is looking at a magazine when suddenly the centerfold inside comes to life to the tune of Aha's Take On Me, which is a lovely reference. For those of you who weren't around in the 80s and the heyday of MTV as an actual purveyor of music videos, Take On Me memorably featured a rotoscope sequence where a young woman's fantasy man emerges from the pages of a comic book. It became one of the iconic pop culture moments of the 80s, and it's about to become very relevant here as the centerfold reaches out of the magazine and tries to strangle our protagonist. The music continues to play through the entire fight scene in what has to be one of the more memorably surreal battles of the whole series, and Ash does his best to avoid getting any of the resultant mess all over himself while he deals with the demons in what could be seen as a gay panic joke given the substances in question. But then again, there are a lot of women who have similar reactions to semen, so we can probably assume positive intent here. It all ends with Ash freezing the demonic Mrs. Lamb with liquid nitrogen and shattering her head, then barely managing to shove the magazine into a drawer before she can manage to get rid of Ash's semen directly at the source, as it were. 
Ruby's at least partially thwarted, but the fact that she wants to make sure her magically conceived infant is the only continuation of Ash's bloodline does not bode well for Brandy. Back at the hardware store, Kelly does a little more emotional labor managing Pablo's feelings toward her and his jealousy regarding Dalton in a scene you can probably tell I don't really love. It thankfully ends when Ash pulls up and warns them that evil is after his progeny, and that means Brandy's in danger whether she knows it or not. They have no idea that Ash has another child of sorts, and he'll inherit Ash's powers and destiny as the prophesied one when Ash dies. And Ruby's going to make sure that happens very, very soon. Which brings us to the next episode, Apparently Dead. Premiere date, March 11th, 2018, written by Ivan Raimi and directed by Diego and Andre Mezavaldez. Ivan Raimi is, of course, Sam Raimi's brother, and the two directors only had a very small amount of experience directing short films when they were hired for this episode. This apparently caused some tension because Bruce Campbell had been writing, directing, editing, and acting for probably longer than they'd been alive, and wasn't afraid to correct them whenever they made a mistake. I don't envy anyone in that kind of situation, and I hope they wind up moving on to bigger and better things from this. The episode opens with Candy's funeral, which very rapidly becomes a total disaster when the embalmers decide to stitch the head back on for the memorial service, and Candy comes back to life and attacks Ash during his private viewing. He re-decapitates her as the title card drops, but winds up stuck in the coffin when it's brought out for the service, and comes stumbling out of it, her head in his hand, directly in front of Brandy and a whole crowd of mourners. It does not do wonders for his relationship with his daughter, and his robotic hand gets damaged in the fight, something that will come back to haunt him in future episodes. I'm going to assume, by the way, that this was all orchestrated by Ruby as part of her plan to drive a wedge between Ash and Brandy, because there are otherwise too many plot holes to make the scene believable. The funeral director, played by Richard Felix, would have noticed that Ash didn't emerge from the private viewing room, and he also would have reopened the casket because the entire point of stitching her head back on was to have an open casket funeral. Also, they would have given her a high-collared shirt to hide the stitches. And if nothing else, the fact that the coffin was a couple hundred pounds heavier would have raised a few red flags. That's all solved if they were secretly working with Ruby, though, and since she's been planning this since 1982, I don't think that's an especially big stretch to imagine. Ruby's right there to comfort Brandy after the blackly comic disaster of a funeral, and again, I love the performance choices Carver O'Neill is making here. There's something so hideously hilarious about the way Ash props up the blood-soaked picture of Candy he used to decapitate her undead corpse, but she doesn't play into that comedy even a tiny little bit. She plays the grief and anguish completely straight, which is exactly the right choice for her character. Ash tries to tell her that quote-unquote Mrs. Previtt is actually a half-demon who's responsible for the supernatural mayhem that murdered Brandy's best friend and her mom. But of course, Ruby's been laying the groundwork for this identity for years now, and Brandy trusts her a whole lot more than she does him. She decides to take Ruby up on the offer to move in with her. Pablo, Kelly, and Dalton arrive a few minutes later, presumably deciding to skip the actual funeral, and Ash warns them that Ruby has returned and she's not happy. As soon as Pablo finds out that Ruby is back, he gets a vision of the priestess from the previous episode telling him to seek out the Kandarian dagger from where it was lost in 1982. So they have to go back to the cabin, again, even though it's not actually there anymore, to find it. Ash stays behind to try to talk Brandy out of moving in with his arch-nemesis, so it's just the three secondary protagonists digging up the earth in the search for the one weapon that can actually kill a Dark One. 
and Kelly, in a bit of subtextual complaint that becomes the text, mentions how frustrating it is to have to come back to the same cabin again. At least this time it's not a season finale. Brandy returns to the Williams house, now that she's cooled off a little from the disastrous events of her mom's funeral, she wants to have one last talk with Ash before she collects her things and goes. But unbeknownst to her, Ruby heads to the cemetery after dropping her off and twists the knife a little by resurrecting Brock Williams as a deadite to bond with his granddaughter at Ash's expense. He returns to the house and showers off the dirt and corruption of the grave to the tune of Crimson and Clover, and god do I love the music in this series. I know it's pure nostalgia for my own childhood, but I'm not immune to that particular pull, and this is a straight-up banger. Ash gets back to the house to find his dead dad and his daughter hanging out and laughing at his cheesy hardware store ad, and his attempts to explain that the old man is actually a zombie who is run over by a demonically possessed car and she's in grave danger fall very much on deaf ears. Brandy just wants things to be normal again and Brock's company is the closest she's gotten to that since the death of her mom. She doesn't want Ash to be right, and that puts him at a grave disadvantage in protecting her. Out at the dig, Kelly finds the Kandarian dagger, but the unseen force finds them. They scatter to evade pursuit, and Dalton winds up impaled on a tree branch. He tells Kelly that Pablo did it, but when he immediately transforms into a deadite and attacks her, it's clear that he may be something of an unreliable narrator. It's also clear that he's not as much of a hero as he was presented as, but let's be honest, there's something very appropriate about the Order of Knights ordained to protect Ash being every bit as much a bunch of fuck-ups as he is. Pablo shows up with the truck to run the zombie Dalton over, but he crashes into a tree and winds up disappearing. Back at the house, Ash and Brock throw down, and even though Brandy gets knocked out in the early going, she wakes up in time to see Ash seemingly murdering her granddad with a chainsaw from a distance that leaves her absolutely soaked in gore, traumatizing her all over again. She flees out into the night, unable to cope with the whole messy drama, figuratively and literally messy in this case, and the closing credits are a rendition of the song Kids from the musical Bye Bye Birdie by Bruce Campbell and Lucy Lawless. It's the What's the Matter with Kids Today song that was rewritten for a Simpsons episode. And that brings us to episode 4, Unfinished Business. Premiere date March 18th, 2018, written by Nikki Paluga and directed by Daniel Netheim. Paluga was a supervising producer on this season, and she also wrote and produced for the shows Resurrection, Perception, and The OA, while Netheim is an Australian director who's worked on a number of shows, including Doctor Who, where he did stellar work on the two-parters The Zygon Invasion and The Zygon Inversion, which means he directed one of the very best speeches in the whole history of the series, and Extremis and The Pyramid at the End of the World. He also did some Broadchurch and K-9. The episode begins with Ash dismembering Brock, just to be safe, and trying to enjoy a beer after the thirsty work only to discover that his hand is now randomly going into squeeze mode and he can't stop it. But he's distracted from the mechanical issues by the arrival of his father's ghost, finally there to make good on all those exposition teasers from last season. He wants to bring Ash to the hardware store to show him a secret he's been keeping for years, which means Ash isn't there when Kelly pulls up in the truck to warn him that Dalton's a deadite and Pablo's disappeared. But Brandy is. After storming out dramatically, she had to come back for her phone, and Kelly's not about to let her wander off on her own because this is not a situation where you can just be a typical teen and go find somewhere to play loud music and work through your feelings. There are undead everywhere. 
as the two of them find out when a deadite Pablo comes racing up on a motorcycle and slams straight through the truck's windshield as the title card drops. We pick up right where we left off, and it's immediately obvious that Dalton was right. Pablo's turned into a deadite, and he's after both Kelly and Brandy. He bites Kelly on the leg in the initial attack, but she manages to dislodge him with a little aggressive driving, and the two of them make a run for Ash's trailer and lock themselves inside. Luckily, Ash has dead-proofed his trailer over the years with bulletproof glass and reinforced walls, so they're safe for the moment. But Kelly's cell phone is still in the truck, and Brandy's is out of charge. This, gentle listeners, is why you always want to carry a spare battery pack. For emergency calls. A little life lesson from Ash vs. Evil Dead. Ash, meanwhile, is wandering through a literal memory of the hardware store as Brock remembers it from 2012, and he sees a Knight of Sumeria, played by Will Wallace, come in with a sheaf of lost pages from the Necronomicon to give to Ash. Presumably in the new timeline, Annie arrived with those pages, found an empty space where her family's cabin should have been, and her dead dad lying in the car parked right next to it, and wound up donating them to the Knights of Sumeria instead of using them to banish Ash and the Unseen Force back to 1300. Which means the Knights shouldn't have been founded because Ash never went back in time, but again, we are resolutely refusing to think about that because the time travel shenanigans mean this is no longer a load-bearing narrative. Oh, and we finally find out that Ash's middle name is Joanna, making his full name Ashley Joanna Williams. There's a group of fans that infer a trans narrative from this, suggesting that Ash may have been assigned female at birth and transitioned during high school to a masculine identity. This does run into a tiny problem, which is Brandy's existence, but given that the entire storyline of the classic trilogy was negated by the end of season 2 and nobody in the show seems to notice, let alone care, I have no problem with inserting some kind of as-yet-unexplained magical hand-wavery to explain that. In other words, if you want Ash to be a trans man, your feelings are valid and Ash says trans rights. Brock and the Knight get into a physical confrontation when Brock says he doesn't know where his son is and wouldn't tell him if he knew, a confrontation that ends with the Knight taking a tumble down the stairs into a cellar Ash didn't even know existed. He didn't know because when 2012 Brock looks down and sees an apparently dead stranger at the bottom of the stairs, he uses the hardware store supplies to board up the door and hide it behind some brand new shelving, then closes the store entirely to focus on the lumber end of his business. Meaning the dead man and the pages are still down there. Back in the trailer, Kelly's looking for some way to restrain Pablo when suddenly the bite on her leg begins to act up in some very familiar ways. Again, I love that Kelly gets all these cool parallels to Ash that make her really feel like a protagonist in her own right and not just a sidekick. If the next revival of the series focuses on her now that Bruce Campbell is retired, I'd be pretty happy. Brandy binds her wound, and the two of them take a moment to bond as Kelly delivers some straight talk about the fucked up life Brandy has found herself in and the real efforts Ash is making to protect her no matter what it might look like. This lands a little better than Ash's fumbling attempts to be a father, mainly because Kelly is awesome. Ash emerges from the memory, still in the hardware store, and pries off the shelving from the cellar entrance and goes down after the missing pages in a nice reference to Evil Dead 2 that doesn't feel like it's just a reference to Evil Dead 2. Having just watched Evil Dead Rise, I've come to a slightly greater appreciation of the installments of the franchise that use the common elements of the stories as a repeating motif, instead of just slavishly imitating them and nudging you in the ribs to let you know how cool the thing they just did was. Not that I'm setting y'all up for a rant in a few episodes' time. 
Ash discovers that the poor guy recovered from his head trauma and spent an indeterminate amount of time trying to dig his way out before finally succumbing to his injuries. His corpse lies at the end of an excavated patch of wall, and near it, he drew a massive mural in Sumerian using the missing pages from the Book of the Dead. That's probably fine, right? Well, maybe not so much, because a window opens from within the mural to another dimension where Brandy's friend Rachel is screaming and begging to be let out, and simultaneously Ruby sees a window open within the pages of the Necronomicon. Ash's window soon closes as tentacles emerge from the wall to attack him in a fight that feels perhaps a little bit obligatory, but Ruby speaks through her portal to none other than Kaya, the corrupted Knight of Sumeria Dalton mentioned earlier, played by Chelsea Florence. She warns her that the knights have established a portal to the netherworld and the other Dark Ones could use it to escape, and asks to be set free so the two of them can stand together against the coming apocalypse. Ruby promises to free her once they find a suitable host body, and goes looking for the only knight of Sumeria Kaya knows about, Dalton, who's still in the forest near the old cabin in the woods. At the same time, Ash decides to go looking for Ruby at the house of the real Mrs. Previtt, who Brock remembers right before he vanishes back into the ether, and take care of her once and for all. Over in the trailer, Kelly's leg wound grows a Pablo mouth, nose, and mustache, because that's not horrifying or anything. We'll get back to that next time, I promise. Ruby finds Dalton and uses the Necronomicon to temporarily banish his demonic self so she can get information out of him, but he blows his own head off rather than tell her anything. It's about as close to a hero moment as he gets, even though in practical terms he didn't even know what she was talking about because it was a different Knight of Sumeria who opened the rift, but yeah. Exit Dalton, thanks for having you, but this isn't a big damn hero kind of show. And finally, Ash breaks into Mrs. Previtt's house, and I have some questions because you'd think people in a small town would notice that the little old lady who bowled with Brock Williams, despite her wheelchair and oxygen mask, was suddenly several decades younger and looked completely different, but again, magic and time travel and so many shenanigans that we probably don't even need to spend 30 seconds hand-waving this away. He doesn't find Ruby, who's still out at the cabin site, but he does find the female hitchhiker from a couple episodes ago desperately singing a lullaby to the occupant of a little crib in the attic. It's Ruby's kid, now a toddler with an organic chainsaw for a hand, sucking on someone's severed thumb and dozing. The hitchhiker's handcuffed to the sink, her life now dependent on keeping the child placated, and when Ash tries to free her and his mechanical hand malfunctions, leaving them bound together by a large piece of freestanding porcelain and metal, the demon child wakes up with a scream that shatters every light bulb in the room and plunges them into darkness. Leading us into episode 5, Baby Proof. Premiere date March 25th, 2018, written by Luke Calto and directed by Daniel Netheim. And since we've talked about both men before in conjunction with previous episodes of this series, let's jump straight into the action. Which begins with the kid, so adorably evil as he plays with Ash's chainsaw, and Ash figures out that it's actually a little demon version of him. He's played by an uncredited Ryder Grant, child of stunt artists Dane and Dana Grant, and I suspect he's not going to be allowed to see his own performance for a very long time. The hitchhiker urges him to kill it, she's played by Samantha Young, by the way, and credited as Natalie, and they make the interesting decision to make her randomly Norwegian, even though the actor playing her is Australian and she's hanging out in Elk Grove, Michigan, but Ash isn't ready to simply blow his apparent child away, and the two of them wind up making a break for it instead. They tumble down the stairs, with Natalie using Ash as an improvised bobsled, and manage to seal the toddler in the attic for a few moments, 
until he proves the chainsaw on his hand to be functional, sawing through the door and into Natalie's shoulder as the title card drops. When we come out, the kid knocks the door down, but winds up going back for his little duck-themed pull toy and giving Ash and Natalie the chance to hide. Ash wants to capture the child, which he intends to present to Brandy as proof that Ruby is a lying half-demon after all, but Natalie had to watch her friend fed to the infant one chunk at a time, and she's really more about either killing it or escaping. This is going to lead her to make some very bad decisions as the episode proceeds. But back at the trailer, Pablo's still trying to break in, and the Pablito mouth on Kelly's leg is taunting her with the brutal truth that her best friend is beyond saving. When he breaks in through the skylight and grabs Brandy by the hair, it seems like he might be right, but Kelly shoves a gag into the mouth on her body and it comes out the real Pablo's mouth. This gives her the idea to pour motor oil into its throat and light it up, getting the real Pablo away from Brandy, and Brandy grabs the Kandarian dagger and stabs him in the shoulder with it. That's when things get weird. In the real world, Pablo collapses backwards onto the couch, it's kind of a running gag in the show that the inside of the trailer is easily twice as big as the outside, a fact nobody ever comments on, and his spirit winds up in a strange forested netherworld where he's greeted by the masked priestess from before alongside, oh hey, it's Pablo's uncle, once again played by Hemke Madeira and finally making good on the promise of his Return of the Jedi funeral back in season one. Nice to see him again. Back at the house, Ash finally pries his mechanical hand off the sink and Natalie finds keys to the handcuffs, freeing them from each other. Ash does a little investigating and finds out that Ruby's been following him around for decades, long enough to know that he married Candy and that Brandy was his daughter even before he found out himself. Meaning that everything's been part of a long-term plot that only needed one last piece, the Necronomicon itself, and now that she has that, she's finally setting everything into motion. It's an interesting development that's utterly lost on Natalie, who clocks the crazy foreigner on the back of the head with the sink and takes his shotgun so she can get the fuck out of there. Pablo, meanwhile, finds out that his earthly body is dying from the wound inflicted by the Kandarian dagger, and the only way to save himself is by fully embracing his destiny as a brujo and using his magic to cure himself. The ritual involves three basins, one of which contains the blood of his ancestors and the other two of which contain the blood of darkness. His task is to mix his own blood with the correct basin, accepting his destiny and becoming a brujo, or, if his intuition fails him, mingling with darkness and being destroyed. Back at the house, Natalie goes downstairs, looking for a way out, but winds up shooting the toy duck instead of the kid and gets brutally eviscerated for her troubles. A recovered Ash finds her, and his attempts to capture the demon child are slightly impeded when the toddler burrows its way into Natalie's corpse and pilots her like a Jaeger to attack Ash. It's horrifyingly hilarious, especially when the kid's head emerges from the stump of Natalie's neck, and I really have to hand it to this show the way it keeps finding new and creepy ways to do splatstick. In the end, Ash manages to stopper up Natalie's orifices with Mrs. Previtt's old bowling balls, imprisoning the demon child within her body, and then rolling it up in a rug and shoving it into the trunk of his delta, and Pablo embraces his destiny and becomes a brujo especial, his aspect divided between the material and spiritual planes and able to perceive both. The Sumerian tattoos vanish from his body, and he wakes up fully himself again, much to Kelly's relief. The two of them kiss, and I guess we're just fully going with the romantic subplot now because we can't have platonic friendships between men and women in shows like this. 
Pablo warns them that something disastrous is coming, and he and Brandy split up to find Ash while Kelly tends to her wound, which has returned to just a normal bite, and makes plans to stab Ruby to death with the Kandarian dagger. Brandy and Ash and Ruby all converge on one another at the hardware store, along with the new town sheriff, and Ash reveals the child in his trunk, who now looks completely and totally normal with no chainsaw hand and no Natalie body. It's kind of an awkward moment, because it does seem like Ash has kidnapped a small blood-smeared child and locked him in the trunk and is now revealing the evidence of his crimes to the police, but Ash makes a final appeal to his daughter. He's never once lied to her, no matter how weird and stupid and bizarre the truth sounded, and no matter how much easier a lie would be than the actual truth to believe, and he's not lying to her now. That's enough for Brandy, and in an oddly sweet moment, she starts up the car so she and Ash can flee together. Ruby gets her kid back, sure, but for the first time since her existence was revealed, so does Ash. Which is a nice spot to break on, even though this season feels less complete at the midway point than either of its predecessors. Rest assured, though, we'll get back to the Rift and the Brujo and the Kandarian Dagger and all those other dangling threads in a couple of episodes' time. For now, the question is, will I hang on to this DVD set? And I think the answer is yes. I mean, obviously I'm hanging on to it for at least a little while so I can finish watching the series, but more than that, this is just a fun ride, with plenty of black comedy and some great moments throughout. I don't know whether it'll fully stick the landing, and I certainly think you can argue that the season finales have been the weakest part of the two previous seasons, but I've enjoyed enough of it to want to have it around just in case Netflix or Stars or whoever's currently showing it decides to pull it again. And if you want to talk about load-bearing narratives, trans rights for Ash Williams, or about anything else that came up on this podcast, you can find me on Twitter as at HalfHorror, and on Tumblr, Blue Sky, and Letterboxd as HalfPriceHorror. My watch list on Letterboxd contains everything I plan to tackle in future episodes. If there's something you'd like to hear about, let me know. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash halfpricehorror, and you can rate and review me on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else this podcast is found. And next time on Half Price Horror, we are winding down the summer of Sam, which, like the real thing, sometimes runs a little long, but I couldn't say goodbye without featuring his latest directorial effort. Because I'm a comic book fan as well as a horror fan, with a whole book on the topic to my name, I don't plug it very often, but it's Storytelling Engines from ATB Publishing, and there's only going to be one chance to discuss my love of comics, my love of horror, and my love of Sam Raimi all in one place. So let's take a detour into the Marvel Cinematic Universe and discuss the horror-themed superhero movie that brought back one of our finest directors, Doctor Strange, in the Multiverse of Madness. See you then.